our way back to our seats. Today, uh, as part of the sermon time, we're going to change things up a little bit today. And I'm thrilled about what's in front of us. It's going to be a real treat for each one of us who are here today. Um, We know that God restores stories, broken people, broken lives. And uh, he has these but God moments, right? Where he interrupts in the best of ways. And uh, we're going to hear from a, a sister today. Our sister Kim Riggs, who's going to share the but God moment of her life and how he has taken what was hurt and heartache and just caused it to abound with great joy. And we're just so grateful, Kim, that you've agreed to do this, to share with us what, what God has done in your life and in your story. And I'm confident you guys will be so blessed and treated, by, uh, treated well by what she has to share with you. And so... Um, would you guys put your hands together for our sister, Kim Riggs, as she comes on up? Come on up, Kim. God bless you, sister. Thank you for sharing. Good morning. I know all too well that Mother's Day is not an easy day for many women. For many women, it is a reminder of broken girlhood dreams and shattered expectations. For many, this day reminds us that our lives did not turn out anything like we had imagined. Shattered expectations of our own relationships with our mom, or maybe relationships with our children, unexpected motherhood, grief over a loss, or maybe like my story, one of infertility and barrenness. My earliest girlhood dream was to be a mother. Even as a young elementary student, I was a natural with children, and I wanted to be a mother more than anything else in this world when I grew up. In junior high, I would learn the terrible truth that some women could not have children, or that some would walk a terrible road of pain and despair before they became a mother. This truth became one of my biggest fears, and I would often pray that God would not choose me to be one of these women that could not have children. I would grow up, go to college, meet Jeremy, I would graduate and we would get married. I had finally arrived at adulthood and my dream of being a mom was finally in reach. We were married for about a year when we decided that we wanted to add to our family. It would take a few months to realize that there was a problem. I would visit my doctor every few months and he would just tell me that I was young and that my body needed to work itself out. There was no need to panic. We moved to South Carolina, and I would find a new doctor who would tell me the exact same thing. After almost two years of waiting for my body to work itself out, my doctor would discover a problem. But with an outpatient surgery, he was confident that they would fix the problem. A week after that surgery, I would sit in my doctor's office, thinking that I was there for a routine follow-up. There was nothing routine about this visit. I would be told that I had cancer. I had a type of uterine cancer that is most common in women over the age of 60 years old. This cancer was so rare in women under the age of 60 that there wasn't even a percentage of women to document having it. I was only 25. I had just been told that I had a deadly disease living in my body, yet I wept that day because it meant I would probably never have children. I would endure 11 months of treatments, doctors, and biopsies. 
My oncologist had hoped that they could kill the cancer cells without surgery and maybe still give me a chance at having a baby. I just knew that God was going to heal me and give me a child, and against all odds, we would have our miracle baby. After the 11 months, there was not any change in the cancer cells. So at the age of 26 years old, I would have a complete hysterectomy. I would leave the hospital 100% cancer-free. Physically, God had healed me. But the healing came with the price that I wasn't ready to make. I was broken. I was angry at God. I could not wrap my heart around the fact that a loving God had done this to me. I had given him my life, and this was not part of the plan. I was convinced that my heart would be forever broken and my arms forever empty. We move back to Tennessee to be closer to family and try to figure out how to live in this new reality. We started the adoption process just a few months after my surgery. We were so heartbroken and we had to do something. During this time, I got really good at pretending that I was okay. I knew all the right words to say, like God still has a plan and he's still good. But in my heart, I was holding tight to, the, to a bag of all the broken pieces of my life. The tighter I held that bag, the thicker the wall to my heart became. My life would be filled with anger and bitterness, jealousy, and even hate. And I convinced myself that I had a right to hang on to this brokenness because God had done this to me. Even in my hardness, he continued to pursue me and fight for my heart. In my darkest hour, the Lord broke through the darkness and told me that he had something amazing planned for my life. But first, I needed to give him the broken pieces. It would only be through the broken pieces could the true beauty of his plan be revealed. If I had truly given him my life, I needed to trust that he knew what he was doing with it. So I handed him all the broken pieces of my life and slowly started seeing hope being restored. We had been in the the adoption process for nine months, and we had hit a standstill. Most adoption agencies have a list of waiting children that are considered special needs. Some of these children have severe medical needs, and some are minor issues like premature or had a low birth weight. Jeremy called our agency in April of 2005 to see if they had any waiting children. Our social worker just told us that just that morning, the paperwork for a little boy from Korea had come across her desk. He was six months old, and he was on the list for low birth weight. And if we were interested, she would send us his information. Of course, we were interested. A week later, we would be sitting in a room at our adoption agency, and I would have my first sonogram moment. I would see the picture of the most precious boy I had ever laid eyes on. In that moment, I fell in love with my son, that supernatural moment that I became his mom. We would fly to Detroit on June 14, 2005, to get Samuel. We were waiting at the international gate and the airport, and a Korean man walked out of the door carrying a tiny baby boy in a carrier on his chest. In an unbelievable gesture, this tiny baby boy saw my face and reached for me. As his little hand reached for me, the Lord whispered to my heart that healing had finally come. I would take that baby in my arms and know that God had given me my heart's desire. And forever making our life a testimony of what it means to be adopted into God's family. 
That moment of trusting Jesus, reaching for him, he takes us in his arms, and he is ours, and we are his. We would bring Samuel home, and the verse that would continue to be in my heart was Isaiah 43, 19. For I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. We had been in the wilderness for a long time, but God was making a way and restoring our life. God was not yet finished with our story. In 2008, we started the adoption process again to adopt a baby girl. Just a few months after we started our paperwork, we got a call that there was a baby girl that would be a perfect match for our family. The next day, we would see the face of our precious daughter and quickly made plans to bring her home. Emma's journey home is a story within itself. It turned out to be a long and agonizing journey as we fought to bring our daughter home after some of her paperwork had been misplaced by the immigration office. There were moments on her journey that made us believe that we would never get her home. The pain in my heart only confirmed the fact that she was my daughter and that I was her mother and I would fight as long as I had to bring her home. We had been in the heat of the battle to get Emma home for about five months when we got an unexpected call from our adoption agency. They had a baby come into their system that had some special circumstances and that we would have the first opportunity to adopt her. We were in a tough place fighting to get Emma home and financially it seemed absolutely impossible. But from that phone call, I knew three things about this baby. I knew the baby was a girl. I knew the special circumstances as to why they were calling. And I knew in my heart that she was already mine. In February 2008, Jeremy and I would fly to Korea to finally get our Emma. It would become clear to us while in Korea why God had delayed Emma's homecoming. Since the phone call about the other baby, some unexpected things had happened, and we were not quite sure if we were going to be able to adopt the second baby girl. The morning we were going to meet Emma, we were able to plead our case for the second baby with the Korean agency. We shared our desire to add this little girl to our family. We left Korea with one daughter, and we were pretty certain that we would never meet the other daughter that we already loved in our heart. Emma had been home three months, and our social worker sat in our living room, closed Emma's file, and to our surprise, opened another file and said, okay, now let's talk about the other baby. In November of 2008, God would complete our family and bring our Chloe home. I would go from zero children to three children in three years, arms that were empty to arms that were absolutely overflowing. Biological children are not random, and my children are not random. Every detail in their life, in my life, point to a father that orchestrated that our hearts would come together as a family. And against all odds, I would be given three miracle babies. One of my favorite quotes is by the late missionary and author Elizabeth Elliot. Of one thing I am perfectly sure, God's story never ends with ashes. Every day, I have three amazing reminders of the beauty that came from the ashes of my brokenness. Every day, I am humbled and want to give God all the glory for the beautiful, broken story that he is continuing to write. My prayer is that my story, 
points to a father who loves us, and no matter how broken we think we are, he has amazing plans for our life. But we must let him write the story. Thank you. I told you guys, I told y'all, wow, glory to God Almighty, praise his name, uh, how he redeems and restores our brokenness and cause waters to flow in the wilderness, thank you Kim, so blessed and we love you guys, uh, Jeremy, Kim, Samuel, Chloe and Emma are such a gift and you guys are all such a gift to us here at the brook. And uh, to all of us, and I know we'll be telling others about this story indeed today. And when we think of God's goodness, um, what, what better way to respond than to just pour back our lives to him? I mean, what, what, what else could we do other than say, God, I am all yours. I belong to you. And when I think of that expression of worship in the Bible, um, I think of a number of different people in the Bible. But one that comes to mind is a woman named Mary of Bethany. Mary was a woman who was a good friend of Jesus. Her brother was Lazarus and her sister was Martha. And Mary's known for a number of things, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But one of those things is the way that she poured out what was most valuable to her, to Jesus, as an expression of her believing him, an expression of her worship. Our sister Limari has written a, a poem about this woman and her devotion to Jesus. And if Nimadi's got herself together enough to read this poem after that, <laughs> would you read this for us, please? and more. Mary knew he could make her new, so she gave all she had. He was everything, everything to her. She gave everything because he was now her worth, and the fragrant oil poured upon his feet was a joy to give to the man who had set her free. The men around the room, indignant and refrain, could learn a thing or two from a grateful woman's praise. And just like Mary, I, I believe the words he said. He has changed my life, and now I'm not the same. The least that I can do is bring him my all. In exchange, he gives the greatest gift of all. He gave everything hanging on a tree. He poured out his love just to set me free. Pouring out his all carried him to a tomb, and his sacrifice was more costly than perfume.
more costly than perfume. Love it. Thank you, Limari. Beautiful words. I'm going to pick up where she leaves off there and unpack that story of Mary and her devotion. Um, This is my last sermon in the book of Mark. Uh, We jumped over it some weeks ago. And it's a mini-sermon because in a moment I'm going to invite my wife to come on up and share some applications of what we see here. But I titled the message Beautiful, Beautiful, because Jesus uses that word when speaking about Mary's actions. And on a day like this, a day of Mother's Day, a day where we reflect on a variety of things, I want us to talk about what true beauty looks like. And it looks like devotion to Jesus. This story that Limari read, it shows up a number of times in the Bible, but it also shows up in the book of Mark, chapter 14, which is page 850 in your pew Bibles. Would you turn there for me, please? Page 850. And I'm going to read the story that Limari so wonderfully put into poetry for us of this woman who in this part of the Bible, she goes unnamed, she's mentioned by her name in John, but talking about her devotion to Jesus here. Mark 14, verses 3 through 9, I'm going to read for you guys. So what God's word tells us. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful, say beautiful, beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Such beautiful words from Jesus himself. I'm just going to pack the story just briefly for us. We're told that a lady there came to Jesus while he was in the house of a man named Simon the leper. Simon was a man who had a skin disease previously and had been healed apparently. We don't know if by Jesus or what means God chose to heal him. But here they are at his house having a dinner there. And a woman who goes unnamed here in the book of Mark comes to Jesus. And as I read, I wondered, why, why does Mark choose to not tell us her name? In the book of John, chapter 12, the story tells us that there Mary and Martha and Lazarus were there at a man's house for dinner, and Mary came and anointed Jesus. But here Mark doesn't tell us why. He doesn't give us her name. And one of the reasons I think that we've seen throughout the book of Mark is this. I think in this subtle way, Mark wants to put us in her sandals. He wants us to see ourselves in her story, and not to get caught up with the name of the woman, but the devotion of the woman. And so as we see this story unfold, the questions that we ask, God, where's my devotion to you? Is my devotion like that of this woman? And so we ask, what was her devotion like? It says here in in the end of verse 3 that a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. 
an alabaster flask is a kind of stone. And these stones were used to, to carry oil within them. And of course, it would be costly oils that went into a costly jar. And later, the, 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 the disciples are there. They're complaining, telling Jesus, she could have given this, this away. We could have sold this and given to the money to the poor. It's worth 300 denarii. And if we know our ancient Near Eastern currency, which I do not, so I need help with this, we learn that a denarii is a day's wage, which is to say a 300 denarii is about a year's worth of value in that alabaster box. It wouldn't be easy for a woman to come by that kind of money in the ancient Near Eastern culture. They didn't have professional jobs that gave them good pay. So it's very likely that this alabaster box was probably a family heirloom passed down to Mary worth a year's wages. There's pure nard in there. Nard was a kind of oil. And to say that it was pure nard means it was a, a, a great kind of oil. It was the best of the nards. There in this alabaster flask. And there Mark tells us it was very costly. Very costly. We consider the value of what Mary had. And then when we think about the actions she would take, we learn something about her devotion to Jesus. Mark tells us that she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And she didn't just open it up and pour it. She broke the flask. It's an expression of her complete devotion, saying, Jesus, all of this value is exceeded by your value. And so she breaks the flask, pours the oil over Jesus, and anoints him. Mary says, there is nothing I've got that is more costly and more valuable than you, Jesus. That's a devotion of a woman of God. And the self-righteous disciples there, we find out in the book of John that Judas, of all people, led the charge in this complaint. He says, why was this ointment wasted like that? Why was her devotion wasted? That's the question that they ask. They said it could have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus' response is just as striking as the woman's actions. With three words, he silences the critics. He says, leave her alone. Get off. And they're thinking like, but Jesus, man, there's a lot of poor out there. We could have done this. And Jesus tells them, even more strikingly, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. He calls her devotion beautiful. We live in a day that is searching for beauty. And beauty and definitions of beauty abound all around us. And yes, there is natural beauty in the world. I mean, if you go to the Grand Canyon in Arizona, and I did this when I was in high school, and I'm so grateful I did, and I hope one day I can go back. Jaw-dropping beauty. You're flying an airplane and you look out that window when you're flying over the ocean, over the land. You just, you're in awe. It's beautiful. We pursue beauty through fashion and other things. And, and none of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But what is wrong when we misunderstand what beauty ultimately is like and what Jesus does here, he gives us a picture that beauty before God is devotion to him. Jesus looks at her heart. And says, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful day outside. But what's inside is even more beautiful. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. 
For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do for them, do good for them, but you will not always have me. Look, Jesus isn't downplaying the struggles of people who are struggling in poverty. I mean, the Bible is filled with instruction, and Jesus, of all people, had harsh words to those who took advantage of the poor. So he's not downplaying it, but what he is doing is he is exalting her actions and saying, look, she gets something that you guys don't get right now. And the getting is behind the question of why does she do this? Why does she do this? Jesus says this about her actions. She has done what she could, in verse 8, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus had been talking for years now about how he would die on a cross, how he would die and be rejected. And if anything, the disciples were like, no, Jesus, that can't happen. But here a woman who goes unnamed in the house of a man who was formerly unclean, a leper, she's the one who gets it because of her devotion. She sat at Jesus' feet to learn from him. She heard Jesus' words. She hung on those words as a woman devoted to Christ. And in her actions, her devotion was displayed. And Jesus said, she gets it. And somehow, in some way, Mary understood that Jesus would die. And of course, she probably did not understand the full extent of all that was taking place, but she took him at his word. And Jesus says her actions were beautiful. Her actions were beautiful. First thing I see about Mary is she she understood that Jesus possessed a value that nothing else could rival. Think about the things most valuable to you in your life. Where does Jesus stand in comparison to them? You see, when Jesus' worth increases in our sight, it's because we understand the cost of his shed blood for us. That's ultimately what we want him to see, and we want ourselves to see, is his worth. Secondly, she poured out her greatest material asset. And what's of greatest worth to any of us but our very own lives? Will you pour out your life as a display of your devotion to Jesus? And thirdly, thirdly, Mary discovers what is truly beautiful in God's sight, and that is devotion to him. But what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Pouring out your life to Jesus, being devoted to Jesus, seeing that he's more valuable than anything. Now, these are some hard questions. So I've decided to pass that on to my wife and let her talk about that. (laughs) So Erica, would you come on up and share with us how devotion looks like to Jesus in the practicalities of life for a disciple of Jesus, for a woman of God, or for a mother here who's trying to pursue Christ? Um, (laughs) Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Um, When I think of Mary and I think of this passage, I'm often just challenged. Challenged by her love for Jesus, which was evident, how she poured out, how she didn't care about other people's opinions. I love that you mentioned that in your poem, Limari. Um, How she treasured Jesus. And Jesus said, uh-uh, that, that is not going to be taken from her. You, you leave that to her. That's beautiful. She's done a beautiful thing to me. And so when I think about what does it look like to be devoted to Jesus, what does it look like to have a devoted life, I think for us it's no different than, than Mary. It shouldn't be any different than how Mary poured out her love and devotion for Jesus. It should look the same. 
She was devoted to him and she poured out her affection upon him. She enjoyed him and his presence and she lavished him with her affection. So I think of two things. There's a woman, who, a woman who's devoted to Jesus intentionally and regularly pursues a relationship with him. She spends time reading his word and spends time praying. And a woman who loves and is devoted to Jesus makes that a priority in her life. Because how many of us know that if, it's not, if we don't intentionally make that a priority in our life, it's one of those things that kind of just go on the, on the wayside. There's a lot of things that, are, that happen naturally in our life, right? Like laundry. We don't have to be intentional about laundry. Laundry happens naturally. And it doesn't fold itself, unfortunately. Um, diapers. That happens naturally. Homework and tutoring and being a taxi driver and taking care of kids or needy neighbors, those are all things that happen naturally. But a relationship with Jesus is something that we pursue. That's something that we seek and we, we pursue. To pursue means to, to seek to attain or accomplish. That means that a relationship with God is something that we intentionally pour time into, just like any other relationship. If we don't foster it, we don't, we don't take care of it, it's not going to be a thriving relationship. So in order to know God and know what he desires for us, we spend time with him. We spend time with him reading his word and praying. And I love to see that for Mary, that was not a chore. That was something she took great great pleasure in. She delighted in it. See, that happens naturally. (laughs) Children. Um, And I know for many of us that may feel like completely impossible. Like how many hats do many of us women carry in general? Many, many hats. Um, And yet when he, when Jesus becomes our top button, when he becomes our number one when he becomes our number one priority on our list, we are placing him as we, when he becomes our, when we say, okay, God, this is all the hats that I carry. This is everything in my life. And yet you are my priority. Everything can flow from that place in our lives. And I thought of this um, one day, one morning, my son was getting ready and he was trying to button up his shirt, and it was a, a buttoned shirt, and he was frustrated. He came in, and he was crying because he looked, it was all mangled, and he didn't, he didn't, he was looking like Quasimodo that day, and I was like, I'm like, pa, I told you, you got to start from the top button, and I know some of you guys are looking at me because you, it, you're OCD, it, you know, it, this is hard for you, and I did it on purpose because when, when God is not our top button, we mess things up. <laughs> when he is not our number one priority and we say, God, you know what? I know I got a lot going on, but you know what? I got so much going on that I need you. Then, um, man, everything else can flow from that place. And that's not saying that um, if we spend time with God and we read his word, everything's going to be great. And everything's going to be just flow just well that day. But it is saying that when we spend time with God, he can fill us in a way that nothing else can. And he can satisfy us in a way that no one else can. 
And he can fill us so that we can actually be pouring out something to, to everyone around us that no one else can do that for us. Practically speaking for me, I have to um, try as best as I can to rise earlier than my kids, which is not an easy task. And there are many, many mornings where I wake up and I'm, I'm waking up and I hear already, doom, doo, 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 doo. I'm like, oh man, they're up before me, you know? And you know, on those mornings I say, God, give me grace, give me, you help me, Lord. And, and he carries us throughout those days, but it's saying, God, I, I really, you're, I really need you. I want, it, I want you to fill me today. Would you do that? Um, and praying and ask God for help. And I, I know that there are particularly diff- difficult times in our lives where, where that is really, really hard. Like when we have newborns or when maybe we're just having a really difficult season in life and sleep is hard and it's tiring or work is tiring. Um, And so be creative on how you do that. Be creative on how you spend time with God. Figure out different places to have a Bible in your home so that you can be filled with his word in moments where you just need it or at work, um, putting verses up in your office and saying, God, help me to redirect my life toward you throughout my day, that you would be my number one. Um, Because you know what? God is ever so near in those moments of life, and when we express our nearness to Him, we, we express our desire and say, "God, I need You." He is He is faithful, and He will meet us in those places. And know that whenever you are choosing to say, "Okay, God, I, I want to spend time with You. I want to read Your Word. I don't even know where to start. This is hard." He will meet you in that place because He's good like that, and also because. Um, it's a beautiful thing, what you're doing. I love that Jesus said what Mary did is a beautiful thing. And so know that anytime you are choosing to put God first, to spend time with him, it is a beautiful thing. When you pour your affection upon Christ. You know, Jesus welcomed Mary in her pursuit of him, and he welcomes us as well. Our greatest need, really, is to know God better. And life really is so, so demanding, so difficult that we really need to say, you know, there's so much going on, so many things on my plate, and yet because of that, instead of saying, I can't put one more thing on, we should be saying, God, because it's so full, I need you. I need you this much. And I know that when I put you first, everything else can flow from that place. So that we're not running on empty all day, right? And so that God can fill us so that we can have something else to give. I think of another way to show our devotion to Jesus um, is when we seek to grow, continue to grow in our knowledge of God, which will increase our trust of him. Because at the end of the day, practically speaking, our theology, it matters. And by theology, I just mean our understanding of who God is and his character they matter. It matters because it is what you're going to lean on in moments of despair. Fixing our eyes on Jesus keeps the big picture in front of us. It helps us to know that God is on his throne, that we are loved, that he is at work in the present moments, and even in this difficult, difficult season, whatever it may be, to know, God, you are at work, and to keep that big picture 
in front of us. That he works for his glory and my good. Your theology matters not just for you, but also for the women around you. When we are so down and we just can't seem to find joy in our daily routine of life, we need a sister who will come alongside us and say, "Uh uh-uh, he's never failed you, he's never failed me, and he's not going to do that now. And so our theology matters in that moment. You know, blogs will tell you, you know, when you're down, go get a manicure. (laughs) Go get a massage. Go on a shopping spree. You know what? Those things will all fade. But his character and his goodness will not fade. And so the more that we delve our lives into knowing him, the more that will carry us. And the more we'll be able to give that to one another as sisters in Christ. And it will sustain us. Our theology matters not just for us and for the women around us, but it also matters for our children. I love John Wesley's words, uh, a great theologian and pastor. He said, I learn more about Christianity from my mother than all the theologians in England. And I don't believe his mother went to any Bible college or anything like that. The generations after us will really reap what we sow. And we have such an opportunity to form an army of soldiers who love Jesus with good theology, who know who he is and can run back to him. And this requires that we're authentic. I have to ask, for my, ask my kids for forgiveness. You know, mommy was not right in that, and I am sorry. So they understand what repentance is. Um, you know, I was thinking about this fact. We spend a lot of time as moms to get our kids to be independent, right? Because, and that's a good thing. We want them to be independent, to start doing things on their own. But for us, it should be the opposite. We should learn and say, I need to be so dependent as a woman upon God and neediness for him so that I can give that to my kids. I was just thinking about that little um, oxymoron um, we grow to be independent so we can lear- learn to be actually dependent upon God. That's a good place to be dependent upon him. Our theology matters for our sisters, for our children, and for men in our lives. As women, we have the opportunity to, to min- minister uniquely to the deepest needs of men, whether they are our brothers, whether they are our fathers, whether they are our husbands. I don't know if you've ever realized, but every married man, when he comes home after a hard day, um, maybe he's struggling with certain things or wrestling things, he comes home to a woman. And a wife knows better than anyone the depth and intensity of her husband's struggles. And if her theology is weak or superficial, it's going to be hard for her to be equipped to come alongside and give him strength, encouragement, and godly counsel. And that's a sobering thought. But it's also such a great encouragement to know I can motivate my husband in a way to help him to become the man that God has created him to be. I can, I can pour into my son, my adult son, or um, be a voice to the, uh, the men in my life. And finally, our theology matters for the church. We don't want to be weak-minded women tossed by the wind and the waves of life. Our theology, it grounds us. Um, Our understanding of who God is and his character is the foundation by which we can go back and glean to. 
that we can glean from. The church is referred to in the body, in the scriptures as a body. And it says if one part of the body is weak, then the other parts suffer. And we as women have a huge, huge impact on the church as a whole. And if we choose to invest and make our main investment, our spiritual lives as women, our spiritual growth, yeah, other things are good, like the gym is good, <laughs> um, even though I don't, I don't do that, but <laughs> um, I don't know, just other things that we spend, we, we pour a lot of time into. But if we said, you know what, my, my spiritual maturity and growth for me is so important, we would impact those around us in such a mighty way. It would impact this, this church, and it does impact God's church. The reality is we can't offer to our families or, um, or anyone around us what we ourselves do not possess. And so if I, I can't impart love to my children if I do not know love, if I am not walking in love, if I'm not pursuing love, I can't, I can't say, hey, love your brother, love your, like, I can't impart that to them. I can't impart a solid foundation of who God is to my families or other sisters in Christ if I'm not seeking to be near to the Lord and growing in my knowledge of him and his character. So our pursuit of God himself will affect those around me. So these things, uh, regular time with God, his work, coming alongside him, reading his word in prayer, seeking to grow in our knowledge of him, these will be our anchor for the trials and the storms ahead because we know that they will come. And when crisis hits, there's not going to be a lot of time to figure out who God is in that moment. That's something that we build up. We spend time with him daily, daily, daily. And it may not always be some kind of, I know sometimes we think it needs to be some kind of grand moment where you're broken and, and, you know, sometimes there's mornings where I wake up and it is a discipline. And I am not feeling like getting up that morning. And I'd rather do something else. And yet because it's a discipline, God works in that. And, and, and his, he's so faithful. And in that, that moment, he calls me to himself. And I'm like, God, this is why you, you call me to you, you know? And I think of Mary and Martha. And I think of how they went back to what they knew. They, they had a strong theology. Because when the carpet was pulled out from under them, when their brother died, and they, they felt heartbroken, what did they do? They went back to their understanding of who God was. And that was their foundation of which they, they, they were able to continue to go forth. And Martha said, I know, Jesus, you're the resurrection and the life. I know. And it was what she knew that she could count on and she trusted. And so my encouragement for us is that we would know God, that we would pursue him and a relationship with him, that he would be our top button and that God would do uh, amazing work in our lives for those around us and for our nearness to him, and that he would do that in us. Amen. Thank you for those words, babe. Uh, the last verse of this passage, and as Erica said, I mean, this is, this is what it comes down to, a life poured out. The verse says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, 
What she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are talking about this woman who went unnamed in the house of Simon the leper because of her devotion. All of us, children of God, all of us who are here today, no matter where you're at, will leave a legacy. And what will be told of you? What will be told of you? will be said that you were one who did beautiful things. And by beautiful, we mean devoted to Jesus kind of things. I think that's part of what this story is here for us, and that's what God wants us to leave with. Um, our prayer is that indeed we would say, God, you are more valuable than anything I've got. And yes, I will pour out my life for you. That's what we want to see happen, all because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has made that possible. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful, God, for the truths of your word, Lord. And we're so grateful, God, for the stories that you've interrupted and the lives you've changed. We praise you, God, for the redemption of Kim's story and Jeremy's story and their three beautiful children. We thank you, God, for the poetry, the poem of Mary's devotion to you, God. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder, God, that what you want from us is all that we are, and you deserve it. And when we pour out our lives to you, Lord, there's nothing better. Thank you for the practical instructions, God, of, of being reminded that your word feeds our soul, and prayer is communion with you, and God, that you speak to us and you work through us in those times. And so, Lord, I pray that our lives would be the kind of lives that it would be said that they send a legacy, they make a legacy of faith poured out to you. Lord, for those who are here today, God, who maybe who don't know Jesus and maybe have yet to put their faith in him and recognize that he died on the cross for them and rose from the dead for them and took their punishment for them. God, I pray that today they would see that, Lord, and that because of Jesus, they can escape hell they can escape eternal death and they can be given forgiveness and eternal life so lord i pray that they would see that today that they put their faith in you today and that they would pour out their lives for you we worship you god we say here we are to worship you in the name of jesus i pray amen amen church family let's rise to our feet prayer team would you come forward prayer team head to the back got prayer leaders who are eager to pray with you no matter what kind of burden is on your heart.